The podcast you are about to listen to is not a medical podcast, nor is it designed to diagnose a condition. While there are medical experts on the show, any questions regarding medical care or concern should be directed to a primary care physician. Welcome to Game on Glio, the podcast providing hope, inspiration, education, and real conversations around the difficult journeys of grief and loss and being diagnosed with brain cancer, such as glioblastoma. I'm your host, Shannon Traphagen. If you enjoy our show, please consider writing a review. Also, share us with a friend. You can follow us on Facebook at Game on Glio or on Instagram at Game on Glio Podcast. Or you can visit our website, thegameongleopodcast.com for our blog, insights, and guest snapshots. Season two of the Game on Glio podcast is sponsored by GT Medical Technologies and Gamma Tile Therapy. Learn more at gtmedtech.com. This episode is brought to you by Mimivax LLC, developing immunotherapeutic vaccines and therapies for treatment of cancers such as glioblastoma. Learn more at mimivax.com. I want to talk to you all today about forgiveness. Forgiveness is one of those words that we hear often, but we don't truly let it sink into our bones. Whenever something happens in our lives, a traumatic event, a diagnosis, a divorce, a death, whatever the circumstance is, we all go through various events that leave wounds wounds that can't be seen. Sometimes things have happened in our lives that truly leave a lasting mark, like the death of a loved one, like a cancer diagnosis. So why am I talking about forgiveness? Because the act of forgiving can open us up to healing in so many ways. If we don't practice forgiveness, then we're the ones that end up paying the most dearly. By embracing forgiveness, we can also embrace peace, hope, gratitude, joy. Forgiveness means different things to different people. Generally, however, it involves an active decision to let go of resentment, anger, hate, blame. And a lot of times that happens when you're in the midst of a cancer diagnosis or losing a loved one. Whether you're the caregiver or the family member, sometimes you can turn that anger and frustration towards somebody else. When you're the caregiver, you can be angry and blame God or blame other family members or blame somebody's job or you blame yourself. Is there something else I could have done? Is there something I should have kept them away from? When you're the patient, you ask the same questions. Why me? What did I do wrong? Should I not have done this? Should I have been better at that? Should I have stayed away from this? Maybe then I wouldn't have got this. Learning to forgive even when you don't know what you're forgiving, is the greatest act that you can do. By forgiving others, by forgiving yourself, you develop healthier relationships, you improve your mental well-being. There's less anxiety and stress and hostility. It lowers your blood pressure you can end up decreasing symptoms of depression, especially if you are susceptible. It strengthens your immune system, your heart, and it improves your self-esteem. When you let go of the anger, the grudges, the resentment that you have, whether it's at yourself or at somebody else, it no longer defines your life. By learning to forgive, 
and opening that channel up, you draw in positivity, love. And in times of grief and extreme sadness, which all of us are walking through in some way, shape, or form, learning to forgive gives you strength. It empowers you from the inside and it helps you walk through whatever is next. And that is a powerful thing. It can be very hard to forgive, especially when you've been hurt so deeply. But you also have to recognize being forgiven. It can be hard sometimes to look in the mirror and say, I've wronged somebody else. I have done this to somebody else. Being able to admit your own mistakes, your own way of thinking, being able to say, I was just so angry and so traumatized that I took it out on somebody else. Even I have been down that road. We make mistakes, we're human beings. After Mike died, I felt so vulnerable. I didn't want anything else to change, and so I clung to relationships and friendships too tightly. I was also numb. I wasn't thinking about anything. I was just numb. I was walking through motions, but I wasn't truly there. And so those can cause missteps as well. Trying to find a way for me to forgive the fact that Mike is dead, he's gone. That is really hard to do, but it's nobody's fault. Nobody did this to him. It is something that has happened. For everybody that is walking through a cancer diagnosis, I have a dear friend, a very dear friend, that is going through it now. It is really hard to look at her and see forgiveness for what is happening to her. But that's what you must do, especially this time of year. Being thankful, recognizing everything that we do have, the power we have within us to make change even in our darkest moments, it opens us up and it helps us learn how to put a light in places where it's dark for others. And that's our conversation today. It is one that will leave you with inspiration and peace and hope going into our holiday season. So please join us. We will be talking to Dr. Randy Diamico from Lenox Hill Hospital, Northwell Health, after a brief word from our sponsor. Imagine waking up from brain tumor removal surgery, knowing that your radiation treatment is already underway. That's how Gamma Tau therapy works. At the end of brain tumor removal surgery, your neurosurgeon implants tiny gamma tiles where the tumor is most likely to return. So instead of waiting to start daily standard radiation treatments that go on for weeks, you get a head start against tumor cells and get back to your life sooner. Gamma Tau therapy is for operable brain tumors of all types including glioblastomas, brain metastases, and meningiomas. It is a one-time targeted radiation treatment with fewer side effects and far less chance of hair loss than external radiation. Gametile therapy is FDA-cleared radiation therapy for patients with newly diagnosed malignant brain tumors and recurrent brain tumors. Gametile therapy is tough on tumors and easier on patients and caregivers. Learn more at gametile.com. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for being here with us. I am joined now by our guest, Dr. Randy Diamico. He is the Assistant Professor of Neurosurgery in the Department of Neurosurgery at Lenox Hill Hospital, Northwell Health. He is the host of the webinar series, Tumor Talk, and he's the Director of Lenox Hill Hospital Brain and Spine Metastasis Program. Dr. Diamico, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you, Shannon. I really appreciate the offer. I love getting involved and getting to hear stories and and kind of share what we do. Hopefully it can help people. 
And that's the whole reason we're here. That's the whole reason we're all here is to really discuss the nuances of the path that so many of us have experienced and been on as far as it relates to brain cancer and the spread of these rare types of cancers. So let's dive right in. You know, let's start with the why. Um, and I and I have a tendency to ask this kind of question to a lot of the doctors that I speak to because this is a very difficult field to be in. Any type of oncology field can be very difficult, but when you're dealing with such a rare cancer, what made you decide to get into neuro-oncology? What made you decide to really focus on the brain and spinal tumors? Yeah, it's a great question, right? You're, you're 100% right, and it becomes a very um, kind of taxing uh, field at times, especially when you're dealing with something like glioblastoma, where even though there's hope on the horizon always, it's been a difficult past with the disease. And I think, you know, I, I go back to kind of my original interest in neurosurgery. And when I first heard about neurosurgery, I, to be honest with you, didn't realize there was anything to do in neurosurgery other than brain tumors. It turns out that it's a pretty fascinating field. We operate all over the body. We do spine surgery for, you know, general kind of aches and pains and herniated discs. And we do blood vessel surgery where we clip aneurysms and save people's lives. And the tumor part of this is actually kind of a smaller part of it. If you look at general practice, about 70% of neurosurgery is spine surgery. And so it, it turns out that my initial interest, my, my kind of misconceptions about the field, you know, led me into, into oncology because that was kind of what I thought existed. As I dove further and further into it, I realized that it, it's a nice bridge. Uh, you get to bridge the gap between medical management of things and surgical management of things. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm a, I'm a surgeon first and foremost. I love operating. The operating room is, you know, a zen-like experience for me where I get to kind of, you know, dictate my surroundings and how the flow of things are going to go. Um, I get to use my hands and really just focus for extended periods of time. Hmm. But you also want to think about things. And so mm -hmm. when you're dealing with anything with oncology, all of a sudden, the biology of what you're dealing with becomes way more important almost than what you're doing surgically. And that allows you to constantly think about these problems, not just in that operating room, right? It's not like the, the lights go back on and the skin's all closed and you're, you're done. Now it's how do I take care of this person, person moving forward? I also just find the, the journey so inspiring um, that the heroism of the patients and their families, that you know, the heroics involved in this, to face this thing and and go full speed ahead with it. Um, you know, I, I was saying, I was talking to someone today, you know, cancer is not, it's not a sniper shot, right? You're not taking mm -hmm. out one person, it's a grenade. You're affecting every single person around them. And so, you know, as a physician who deals in this, you, you deal with your patient and you deal with your patient's family. And, you know, I consider myself a personable person and I, I like to be involved in the family. I like to hear the story and I love, I, I love that aspect of it. And if I had to go real, real deep, I'd say I love that aspect for it because it gives my life a lot of perspective. Mm. I get to see how dealing with mortality affects people. And it allows me to be in, incredibly grateful for everything that I have, uh, for the career that I have, for the opportunity to kind of peek into the lives of other people and see kind of what life has, has dealt, you know, everybody. And I think it, it affords me the opportunity to to just reflect on my life and, and internalize it and, and just be incredibly grateful for everything. And so that's kind of the, the why, I guess, in, in terms of why I do it. It's interesting. That's a really unique perspective. And it's very layered. That is very, it's a very layered perspective. And I think that that's intriguing. It's, you don't hear too many oncologists that take that approach to why they are doing this particular type of treatment. And I also think it's extremely fascinating that more than 70% of the brain surgeries that are done or are more related to spinal surgery and that there are other issues going on and that it's very, it's a very small percentage that is actually in dealing with a brain tumor. So that, that really surprised me. Yeah, neurosurgery as a whole is primarily other things. And so, and you know, it, it, it actually speaks to also the small number of tumor specialists around the country. Mm. You know, they tend to aggregate in these major academic centers because again, you know, at the end of the day, surgery, even though, listen, we have all the bells and whistles, we've, we've advanced technologically pretty, 
pretty incredibly. We have a very sophisticated workflow, what we can offer. Mm -hmm. um, but at the end of the day, the, the core is a steel and a string, right? We're, we're using a scalpel and suture, but we know so much more about cancer. And, and the, the truth is, is that cancer is a molecular disease. It's a, it's a biologic disease. It needs to be treated with medications down the road. Right. We just haven't you know, got to that point yet. Right. So I know my place in the spectrum of all this. I enjoy doing <laughs> surgery, like I said, but I also know that um, you know, my role in this is, uh, is a technician, basically, you know? And the real, you know, pursuit of, of a cure is going to end up being in the medical side without a doubt. So what I do is I offer what I, what I can give, right? The access that I have is tissue. Right. I have access to the brain tissue and that's what people need to study. And that's what we study, you know, at, at Lennox with our internal group. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's, it's important, I think, to put in perspective kind of what you do. But yeah, no, this, the field itself is a, is a smaller field and you tend to have experts kind of in pockets of excellence around the country, around the world, really. So you are part of the Northwell Health System, and I'm assuming that Lenox Hill Hospital is umbrellaed underneath of that. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, we okay. consider it we consider it the crown jewel, but don't tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're going to know after this. <laughs> yeah, I know. No, you know Northwell. Northwell is a massive institution. I, I I don't know how familiar you are with it, but I'm sure the listeners may not be. It's the largest single employer of New York State. All right, it's 23 hospitals. Wow. Um, it's over 600 physicians. It is a behemoth, and um, the growth of it has been incredible. And if you look within the system itself, there are small pockets within it of those 23 hospitals where you can have brain tumor surgery and it can be done, you know, excellently. And then there are kind of the two central hubs being, you know, North Shore Community Hospital in Long Island and then Lenox Hill. Okay. And the reason I say that they're hubs is not from any reason of technical excellence. It's a research excellence. Mm -hmm. You know, under my, my senior partner, John Bookfar, we've been able to really push the envelope with clinical trials and the same at North Shore under, under Michael Shoulder. Okay. As you know, and we'll probably talk more about later, you know, the importance of clinical trials to patients with brain cancer is, you know, cannot be understated. It is the, the single most important thing to moving the needle at all in the treatment of this disease. Yeah, it's crucial. Um, it is something we focus on heavily. And so to hear that, that is such a primary focus for Lenox Hill and for Northwell Health. And for many of our listeners, they're very familiar with Dr. Bukvar. He was a guest on our last season. And so you guys have a very strong team. I mean, this is, you guys are passionate and dedicated. But it's interesting, your focus is actually in the metastasis. So explain that a little bit as it relates to the metastasis into brain and spine and what the difference is between that and a primary tumor. Exactly. Yeah. So tumors, tumors in the brain or brain cancer, when we refer generally to it, we talk about primary or secondary tumors, right? Mm -hmm. Primary tumors are tumors that arise from the brain tissue themselves. So these are your gliomas, which run a spectrum, as you know, from, you know, grade ones to grade four, which is, you know, the most severe type. When we talk about secondary tumors, we talk about people who have different types of cancer whose, you know, cells break off and travel through the bloodstream and get access to the brain. Mm -hmm. Now, I trained in brain tumor surgery, right? And spine tumor surgery, but we'll focus on the brain now. Brain tumor surgery, uh, I, I do everything. I do gliomas, which are, you know, we talked about meningiomas, which are benign tumors of the, of the surface of the brain, mm -hmm. uh, and metastases. But when I came to Lennox, you know, John Bookfar has such an incredible clinical trial foundation already set up uh, that he really runs for gliomas. While I can contribute to that, I wanted to expand what we could do. And we had been treating brain metastases for years and doing a fantastic job. But I said, let's, let's look at this a little more closely. Let's look at the field currently as it is and see if we can offer a valuable resource to patients who are suffering from this. Okay. And um, it turns out that we've gotten a lot better at treating cancers of the body. Now, not perfect, but a lot better. People are living a lot longer. Our preventative medicine has gotten better. Our treatments have gotten more interesting. And in the past, when someone was diagnosed with a brain tumor, everyone would say, well, that's, that's it. We can't win anymore. It's stage four disease and we have no treatment that can do the, anything here. Mm -hmm. And we've improved that. And surgery is still paramount to it. 
but our radiation techniques have gotten better with targeted radiation at these sites. People don't know this, or you might know if you listen to, to John's talk, but the blood-brain barrier is a very real limitation of the brain. And this is absolutely critical to glioblastoma patients, Yes, but it also is critical to brain metastases patients. How so? So the, the blood-brain barrier is a gate, right? Mm-hmm. It typically functions to protect us. It keeps pathogens out of our brain. It keeps toxic chemicals out of our brain. But when you develop a brain tumor, it also keeps your chemotherapy out of your brain. Yeah. And so it's a real problem. So these large molecule chemotherapies can't access the brain. And the majority of our chemotherapies are exactly that, large molecules that can't access the brain. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, John has devoted the majority of his career to finding ways to open the blood-brain barrier. And a, a lot of our clinical trials focus on that. I did a lot of that work when I was a resident in training uh, via a different mechanism. John uses something called intra-arterial therapy, where he delivers drug directly to the arteries. Okay. I had done... I had worked on something called convection-enhanced delivery, where we push drug into the brain tissue surrounding tumors. But as we've gotten better at treating our cancers, we've developed new drugs that can penetrate the blood-brain barrier. Right. And so it turns out that our brain metastases patients have a lot more options than have ever been considered. And so basically, I partnered with John, and I said, let's push both of these things full speed ahead. And let's grow, you know, a, a brain tumor center that is a one-stop shop for everything. Really? Yeah. So now, when you talk about more options for brain metastases patients, is that because that's what's available now? Or have you guys been able to learn things from a metastasis of cancer into the brain that you might not have gotten with a primary tumor of the brain itself? Basically, in my head, having cancer cells actually travel into the brain somehow, are you able to learn more because of how it migrates there to begin with and the behavior of it that maybe helps you in combating a primary tumor of the brain, or is it pretty much the same behavior? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, It turns out that when primary cancer, let's say a breast or a lung cancer, travels to the brain, it changes. And actually, they've done work on this, and about 60% of these tumors that they find in the brain Mm -hmm. have mutations that are different than in your body. And these mutations that allow the tumor to access your brain are frequently targetable with special drugs or immunotherapies. Fascinating. Right? And so we have learned a lot about treating that disease. And the question is really what what I think you're getting at is, can we take anything from what we learned there Mm -hmm. and put it into the glioma world, right? Yes. Now, a glioma is a very different tumor than a metastasis. A glioma is a transformed cell that recruits the environment into it. And as it does that, it turns off your immune system to recognize it. It is a very, very vile enemy. Wow. And so our attempts at immunotherapy or using the body's immune system to treat this have have not been successful to date. We've got a lot of people very interested in this. Mm-hmm. And it's partly because the tumor itself is inhibiting that microenvironment that allows the immune system to kind of to take care of these, you know, tumors elsewhere. Um, further complicated by the blood-brain barrier. And then in terms of the targeted therapies, what we've been able to do is kind of look at the shared targets. So if a drug works on one, can it work in glioma? You know? Right. And there aren't there aren't unfortunately too many of those shared targets that okay. we can use. But as we know, as we learn more and more about the mutational burden of these tumors and the mm-hmm. alterations, then it allows us more drugs to try uh, and more targets to try. And so, you know, I think we absolutely learn a lot from these things. We learn about the effects of, you know, radiation on the brain and what types are gonna work. But the truth is is that they're they're just they're very different tumors. And a glioma is a very worthy enemy, yeah. It is. It's a it's a unfortunately <laughs> a worthy opponent. Yeah. And I do know, and I, I I've spoken to other specialists who are very fascinated with turning that immune response back on, finding ways where that immune response is reactivated to target those cells that the glioma is trying to turn off. And so I think it's this is the behavior of all this is just so complex and this is why it's been so difficult to treat but yet there are advancements that are are making progress even if they're small steps and that is the, the small 
shining light that we want to put emphasis on? Oh, you have to look, I, I, I tell patients a lot recently, especially since 2020, you know, time is important here, right? Mm -hmm. If you look at the rate of change, um, of technological advances, of we found a, a vaccine for COVID in a year, right? We were faced with something. Exactly. The difference there is that the whole world was doing that, right? right. And our problem with gliomas and brain metastases is that they're underfunded studies. Yeah. Um, you know, at the end of the day, and uh, we don't have the same resources looking for that cure. But time is what you need. That's what we're all doing. You know, I mean, we're we're shining a, a brighter and brighter light on this, and hopefully drawing more attention on the world stage to get people to recognize and realize that we need to rally around this like we've rallied around so many other things. If you look at what we already have learned, you know, I, I would say 10 years ago, five years ago even, you would you would Google what survival is like with a glioblastoma. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it would say 15 months. And that was it. And then, you know, you, you would call all your friends and tell them at the Google page. And it was, you know, a huge tragedy. Yeah. The truth is, is that that number is is biased, right? We've learned so much about the molecular basis of this disease mm -hmm. that we know now that, well, you know, some some percentage of people are going to push that three year mark, yeah. um, depending on the molecular features of their tumor. And some patients are going to respond really well to this drug. And so we should use that drug. And others are going to be candidates for this clinical trial that are targeting this feature. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that I, I find it hard to tell patients now that the average is 15 months because mm -hmm. until I know their full molecular panel, I don't, I don't know what to say to them, you know, right? because that, that average wasn't, it, it was an average of people who didn't all have the same tumor. Right. And if you think about it, I mean, anybody who's listening, anybody who's familiar with this podcast knows half, if not more of the patients that have been on as a guest on the show are three years, mm -hmm. five years, seven years out with stage four glioblastoma. Incredible. We we had one um, who's actually he's coming on in season three. He's fourteen years incredible out with a stage four glioblastoma. I would love to meet more people like that yeah. because when I talked about the insights that I get from patients, imagine being told you have a year to live and it's fourteen years later. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I can't imagine the mindset it puts you in. Yeah. It's, it's, it really is remarkable. And a lot of it. So it's interesting as we talk about this because I do know that one of the things, and it's, it's something that I know that you guys are using at Northwell at Lenox Hill, and it's showing up more and more at, at hospitals across the nation. But it only just recently came out and it's gamma tile therapy. And that is something that, um, as we discuss radiation and new treatment op options and ways of breaking that blood-brain barrier, gamma tile therapy is this little tile that's actually inserted at the at the point of surgery in the moment that you're doing surgery right next to the tumor. So, can you talk a little bit about how this is changing the game when it comes to dealing with brain cancers in general, but such as glioblastoma? Yeah, absolutely. So, so what Gamatol uses is um, a radioisotope called cesium. Mm -hmm. It's a form of therapy we call brachytherapy. Right? Okay. What that means is putting radiation into the site, basically, not targeting it externally with you know radiation beams passing through you. Yep. It's putting this high dose radiation in the surgical site. And in the past, they've used different radioisotopes like iodine. Mm -hmm. um, it turns out that cesium actually kind of dissolves quickly. It's relatively safer. Um, and there's been a very renewed interest in this. And so the gamma tile people, uh, came about and they said, well, how can we make this easy to use and, and does it work? Right. And so they actually embedded it basically in a tile. Everything's pre-measured for you. And when you do your surgery, you take out your whole tumor and you line the surgical cavity with the cesium seeds embedded in this matrix. Mm -hmm. And it delivers very high dose radiation locally. Now, you know, as with anything, you have to go through the process of, well, what do we use this for now? And how is it going to be important? Right. And it turns out that large tumor cavities that are gross, totally resected are really ideal for this because they tend to fail really high dose um, stereotactic radiation. And it turns out also that recurrent tumors that have already been radiated, this is a perfect option for, um, because in that case, you, I'm sure many listeners know, or many people have gone through this, that you can't get really more radiation, right? 
Yeah. Um, and so this allows that opportunity to apply more radiation at a very high dose, very locally. Now, the current, you know, best indications are actually for the metastatic tumor population, at least in my mind. Okay. But that indication is expanding as people do more and more work with this. And so in the setting of being able to remove totally the tumor, mm -hmm. someone who has previously had radiation and someone who maybe has, you know, utilized one or two medical treatment options, mm -hmm. all of a sudden you have another option, right? You're able right. to offer an additional point of you know care for a patient. Mm -hmm. um, and it turns out that the data for it in certain tumor types is actually pretty good. There's less risk of something called radiation necrosis, which is yep. a treatment effect from radiation. Mm -hmm. The control rates uh, that have been published are actually very, very satisfactory, um, especially in the metastatic population. And so now people are saying, well, let's, let's push the envelope a little bit. Let's do this up front with new diagnoses. And what I'll tell you about this that I really like is, you know, when I do a surgery, when I do a brain tumor surgery, I don't cut anyone's hair. All right. Mm -hmm. I leave the hair intact. I don't put staples in the head. Everything is under the skin. Okay. So when you wake up from your surgery, you uh -huh. don't look like you had brain surgery. Really? Right? So you go home to your family and you don't look like you had brain surgery. And you come in two weeks later and you don't have that anxiety of I have to get my staples taken out. Mm -hmm. Right. And what gamma tile allows you to do is get rid of that anxiety of I'm getting radiation for six weeks Yeah, because the radiation is already in your tumor and it starts the minute you close the skin, the minute the tile is placed on there. Wow. And so all of a sudden you're taking that additional step out of the game. And it does. It eliminates that, that stigma that comes with that constant reminder of four days a week, five days a week, driving into a, a, a cancer center, sitting in a radiation lab, putting on the mask, doing all of those steps that really always are constantly reminding you that this is what's going on. Absolutely. And so that is really, really fascinating. And What's great too is that you don't have to go in and have surgery again to have it removed because if I'm not mistaken, it dissolves once mm -hmm. the radiation is done being emitted. Yeah. You, you, the cesium seeds will stay in place, but the, mm -hmm. the matrix that it's in dissolves. You do not have to have it removed. This stays in place and um, it treats you, you know, immediately. Now, you know, people don't realize, you know, you have a, a gross total resection. Let's, let's stick with glioblastoma for a minute. Mm -hmm. You have a gross total resection of your disease that you can see on an MRI. Mm -hmm. But we know that there are still tumor cells in the brain, right? Right, And they extend, you know, really within that first two centimeters. Um, you know, what people don't realize is that time that you're waiting for your scalp to heal so you could start your radiation, those tumor cells didn't get like a memo that says they have to wait, right? They're, they're growing. That's growing right. tumor. Right. And so it's going to be a minute till, you know, we change standard of care. And there will yeah. always be a role for radiation because the data supports it, number one. And number mm -hmm. two, not everyone can get a gross total resection, but in a select group of patients, the ability to use cesium brachytherapy, you know, should and will be a game changer, I think. Right. Uh, and we'll wait for the big studies to prove that. Right. That's what this is all about, right? It's, it's these new waves of therapies and treatments that are really showing great clinical data. And it is it's beneficial not only in metastases, but in direct line tumors, these primary tumors, where this could be really effective. And, you know, and it's all part of the conversation. So tell me a little bit about the webinar series that, that you're working on that you host and what the focus is primarily for that. We'll start with Tumor Talk because it's, uh, it's a more consistent part of my life. Uh, and basically what happened was, um, you know, the COVID pandemic hit. And there were mandates uh, that essentially shut down neurosurgery, right? Mm -hmm. We were still able to do uh, brain tumors. Luckily, we're, you know, or luckily, I guess in quotes, we're still considered emergency. So it didn't stop us from taking care of brain tumor patients. Mm -hmm. But we didn't do surgery for back pain anymore. You know, benign tumors had to wait, you know, mm -hmm. periods of time. It declared itself a problem. Right. And so we all had more time on our hands. We couldn't go to the labs. <laughs> we were, you know, we were all sitting there. And I realized that, um, you know, one thing that would be great would be to, to get out to the people who are sitting at home with these diseases who were scared, who right. said, you know, I'm immunocompromised or, you know, I can't see my doctor. I can't go to a hospital. What am I going to do? 
And so I started it actually as a, a COVID-related um, webinar that was really targeted towards patients and their families. Mm -hmm. And I would say about the fourth or fifth um, webinar, I said, well, I've run out of things to talk about because there's only so many times I can say, no, you should <laughs> see your doctor. Um, you should take your medicine. And, you know, and I had great guests on and everything was fun. And so I said, you know, but people are tuning in. This is actually a pretty powerful medium, which I, I think obviously, you know, through the success of your podcast, you understand. And so I said, well, let, let's, let's use this to push research forward. Let's like, you know, provide a, a, an avenue or a venue where, you know, people who do research on this can talk not just to other researchers, right? Because who mm -hmm. the hell knows what everyone's talking about, right? but talk to patients, their families, to students who are interested in neurosurgery, to other neurosurgeons. And so I approached the Journal of Neuro-Oncology. Uh, the editor-in-chief is Jason Sheehan there. He was also chair of the joint tumor section, which is our big national tumor section. Yeah. And I, um, and I said, Jason, you know, I want to do this and I want to just highlight articles in the Journal of Neuro-Oncology. Um, I'd love for you to be a co-host. We'll get the authors on and we'll talk about the reasons they're doing their study in human terms. Mm -hmm. the results of that study and what it means, the relevance of, of what this means to the, not just, you know, other researchers, but the general population and clinical practice. And he gave it a shot. And, you know, we've probably done over 50 uh, episodes now. I think it's the numbers like 52 or 53. We've, you know, amassed, you know, somewhere between five and 6,000 views on YouTube. It's, a, it's current, it was a YouTube channel until very recently. I'll get to that. And it's going strong. And Springer Nature, which is the publisher of the Journal of Neuro-Oncology, yep. just teamed up with another company now called Cassini, and we're collaborating with them. And so now we've moved to a more formal broadcasting platform. It's got subscription abilities. And the most important thing is that it provides the author with something called a DOI, um, which is basically a marker that this is a publication. So you can cite this now on your resume that you did a tumor talk. Oh, Wow. And yeah, and it's great. And it's searchable. It's indexable. So right. you can find these webinars now and they count as, you know, publications and, and, you know, they're peer reviewed articles. We're not up there, you know, spreading misinformation. These are articles that have been, have gone through the peer review process. This is real data and it's being brought to you by the person who thought of the idea and really interprets this. You get to hear their mindset about what this means. Wow. And the feedback's been great. And I, I actually really enjoyed doing it because it also keeps me abreast of a lot of different, you know, avenues that I don't necessarily focus on on my day to day. Mm -hmm. Well, it also is, it's information sharing at its best mm -hmm. and it's among, it's peer to peer. Yeah. So it's really inclusive and really giving this broad spectrum to everybody that's in this field. And it's interactive. Yeah, it's extremely interactive. And that's yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. And so we've had good response. I'm looking forward to the new collaboration. I think it's going to offer a lot of different options for people. You know, we've we've raised about fifteen thousand dollars in research funding through educational grants provided by corporations through Tumor Talk as well. And so I'm given, I get to give back, which is fantastic too. Um, so we send our money to the NREF. Yeah. I mean, that's a big part of all of this, right? You know, I mean, that's, it's part of why I do Game on Glio. You know, I mean, through, through doing this, I'm able to do a fundraiser that raises, you know, fifteen twenty thousand $20,000 a year yeah. uh, to brain, brain cancer research, clinical research, and every single dollar really makes a huge difference. So it is amazing when you get to see that you're able to give back in such a tremendous way and the effect that it has on the community at large that you're not even really aware of. No. Yeah. And those, those dollars are incredibly important. Mm -hmm. You know, s small and large amounts are, they all, they're all going towards, you know, cutting edge research, pushing the envelope, pushing the needle forward on treating this disease. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, people, our research coordinators, they have salaries, right? You, this stuff all costs money. You have to buy pipettes. You have to buy, you know, yeah. you know, mice to do experiment on, unfortunately. You have to buy all this stuff. And, and yeah. so, and the bigger issue is not that. The bigger issue is that the field itself is underfunded. Yeah. You know, and the, the other corollary to that, which I think is always so important to understand, is the trials are underpopulated. The participation. Ah, uh, Okay the participation levels in these trials is low. It's, you know, 30%, you know, is, is considered a really good number. I can tell you from experience that a primary reason for that is because not enough people are aware 
of the clinical trials that are out there. We still have a lot of doctors who are very set on the standard of care. They don't want to go outside their comfort zone or they're not sure. It's just a long shot yeah, for a lot of people. And so they either don't discuss it, it's not brought up, or people just don't know how. To, I mean, when you go to clinicaltrials.gov, and I just had this discussion with a corporation the other day, they're even they're redoing their site and they tell you to try out their new site and you go and you you click on it and it's like oh, this is still complicated <laughs> to get through you're not making this easier for anybody and so i think that turns a lot of people off because they especially the patients and the caregivers directly they don't have time they don't have time yeah. to sit there and weed through all this and try to figure out what this means and are are we a fit and so that really decreases that that participation level 100% i think i think the you know, the secondary importance of what you do is get that information out there um, yeah. through the Game on Glio podcast, right? Because yeah. not only is it cumbersome to go through and then read these things and say, well, I want that polio virus or I want that mm-hmm. intraarterial therapy, right? You don't know what that is. Right. The other, the other difficult part is that there are a lot of surgeons who can do a brain tumor surgery, right? Mm-hmm. But there are not a lot of centers that are providing quality clinical trials, any Mm -hmm. clinical trials, right? Right. So patients can go get a surgery done anywhere. But, you know, the data has shown consistently that patients do better when they go to major academic centers that that do this, you know, regularly. Yeah. And when they are put into clinical trials, but people don't know that and it's not disclosed necessarily. So speaking of that, since we're on the topic, is there anything coming down the pipeline or a clinical trial or anything that you guys are doing through Northwell and through Lenox Hill that you would want listeners to know about that is either currently starting or that might be coming up that you want people to just keep an eye on? Yeah, I mean, we are we are full of ideas to the point where I don't, you know, we actually probably have difficulty finding enough people to help us do them. You know, our clinical trial focus right now is on the intraarterial delivery of chemotherapies. Okay. And so, you know, John Bookfar is the investigator on these. These are kind of his projects that he's run for years and they've evolved over time. Mm-hmm. And so intraarterial delivery is a is, you know, I think a very, very valuable way to bypass the blood brain barrier. And so the drugs may vary. And that's kind of where the future lies is changing mm-hmm. these drugs to find the one that's going to be the most effective. We're also delivering now radiation through the artery. And so this is a new trial that we're opening up where we're able to deliver radiation into the artery itself. So it's the combination, right? Intraarterial plus radiation for certain patients. Mm-hmm. Our cesium brachytherapy program uh, is getting going. We're very excited about it. John, myself, and our radiation oncologist, Gabriella Wernicke. And so the role of brachytherapy, uh, such as gametile, um, you know, has not been fully, uh, you know, defined yet. Yeah. And so we're going to be, you know, pushing studies with this in the very near future. And then, you know, there are other parts of brain surgery that, that, you know, there's still a, a reason to have a surgeon, right? And the most important thing about someone going through a brain surgery is making sure that that person uh, has a quality of life afterwards. Right. And so we are looking very heavily now into brain connectomics. Um, It's a new imaging platform that I've started using. Uh, I'm very interested in complex brain mapping when I do surgery. Okay. So even though I do a lot of brain metastases, the glioma surgeries are the most intellectually stimulating for me because gliomas infiltrate, right? They go into critical regions. Right. And so I draw kind of my, my most zen is when I'm doing a complex case where I'm trying to preserve language or motor function. It's a surgery where you have to really think about what you're doing and what you're preserving and where you are in three-dimensional space and where the networks are. And so the connectome is an understanding of the networks that are involved in being human, basically, being able to make decisions and speech and language. And So is this, for layman's terms, and this is how I'm just, I'm seeing this in my head, is it almost like a 3D CAD yeah. kind of system where it's being modeled and mapped out? but it's giving you a pathway when you're doing the surgery so that you can preserve these other areas of the brain. Exactly. It's a really, it's a really good analogy. Okay. (laughs) So it allows you to kind of develop a trajectory to a tumor where you're going to go through the least important areas of your brain. Wow. Because we've all seen people get brain surgery and they wake up okay, but there's always something a little bit different, right? Mm -hmm. 
And it's trying to minimize that. We call it the oncofunctional balance, right? Okay. We want to get out as much tumor as we can while preserving as much function as we can. It's fascinating. There seems to be a lot going on with the work that you and John and Gabriela Wernicke, yeah. And Marana Voynich is my um my oncologist who's absolutely brilliant. I I'm not even touching on the stuff that she does where she looks at the molecular makeup of these tumors and comes up with, you know, novel ways to target them based on their genes. And it's it's an infinitely complex thing. And this this goes a long way to having a strong team and individuals who are creative and willing to think outside the box and yet be in touch with that empathetic side of themselves when working with patients and families, that goes a long way in the overall care and treatment that a patient and their family receives. And that is not always easy to find. So that combination is critical. Yeah, no, we we are a family. Um, and it's, I think, what I love most about working there. Now, you know, it's a huge hospital system. We have, uh, fortunately, because of that, a lot of resources. And it's still growing. And so we have a, we get to build, you know, this incredible place um, that, you know, fortunately has these resources to help us build. But that wouldn't, that wouldn't be possible if the people there didn't care about what they do. Mm-hmm. And so I, I credit, you know, John, John's my boss. I give him a lot of credit for building that team. The research team is unparalleled. I've never met people so capable and so caring about what they do. The recruits that we have are, are just fantastic. And the talent, you know, I think, I think is, is really astounding. And, you know, I, I had a patient today um, who wanted to go somewhere else. Um, and, you know, I, I gave my spiel and, you know, that happens constantly. We're in New York City. There's five major academic centers in a 14 mile by two mile radius. Right. Yeah. And I said, I said, absolutely go. I was like, just just do me a favor. Just just go get different opinions, but come back before you make a decision. And just I'll tell you very honestly what I think of the plans. You can make your decision and you can at least meet the team that's going to take care of you. And there's no pressure there. I think it goes a long way. It really does. And it's, is that one of the main things that really motivates you? I mean, this question is just something that it, I, I, it gives clarity and insight when it comes to the listeners and when I'm, especially when I'm speaking to medical professionals, when you're working in a field like this, when you're working in neuro-oncology and you're dealing with rare tumors like glioma tumors and brain and spine metastases that can be very difficult to treat. What is it that motivates you? What is it that makes you get up every single day and come in and want to do this work? It's a really hard question, uh, but also a really easy question. You know, it's, know. It's, a com- it's one of those like, <laughs> I can tell you, you know, um, neurosurgeons, neurosurgeons are, are a special breed in terms of, um, you know, get up and go. Uh, we're very, very, ambition is the wrong word. It's, it's, we're just driven, right? We see something in front of us, we see a problem and you learn maybe through residency and through training and through dealing with these things that uh, there's a problem, I must fix it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so, and you get this unique access. And so there's something intrinsic without a doubt that is, I'm a self-starter, I'm a self-motivator at kind of everything that I do. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, the environment, right? I don't go to work with people who say, nah, today we're just going to take it easy. You know, mm-hmm. I go to work with people who say, come on, we got work to do. We got to figure this out. We got to do this. You know, we have to get this done by this time. Right. And you draw off each other, you feed off each other. And then you go in the room and you talk to a patient and their family and their family says, look, I Googled everything, but, but no, I need to keep going. I want to, I want to do everything that we can do Mm -hmm. and that motivates you. Right. Or, you know, you get a terrible story. You get, you get someone who's young um, and, and, you know, someone who's good or or even old and and just a good person and undeserving of this. Right. I tell patients all the time, sometimes bad things happen to good people and that's what this disease is. Yeah. And, you know, you, you look at this and you say to yourself, what we do right now isn't good enough. And so what's the next step? You know, how do we move forward? 
Um, cause it's not fair. Mm-hmm. I can open my phone with my face, right? I can look at my phone and, and I, I didn't even have a phone when I finished college, right? It didn't exist. And, um, <laughs> and I can open with my face. And so how is it possible that we have gotten so good at so many things and not here? But this eludes us. Yep. So now let me follow it up with what makes doing this so hard? We, we still kind of, at the end of the day, we still lose our patience. Um, and so, you know, you get stuck yeah. in these situations where everything is going perfect and then you get that one scan where it's back and, you know, you have no mm-hmm. options left and you, you have to make that phone call or you have to bring the patient in and look them in the eye. That's the way, you know, I do it. And you have to say, you know, look, we, we've done everything. Anything more will hurt you. That's not in the business that we're in. And so, um, right. you know, we have to, we have to stop this now. Uh, and that. I told you, you know, there's two ways to look at that. You could go home and be depressed and sad about that, or you could use it to kind of motivate you mm-hmm. and just, again, you know, go home and hug your kids and, you know, and say, you know, I, I, look, I'm fortunate I have my job. I'm fortunate I have these abilities. That is the hardest part without a doubt every single time. Yeah. And it's just, you know, it's, it's the frustration that goes along with it. Those, those are the real terrible times. So give us the hope in the next three to five years given everything that we've talked about, where is the hope? And what do you see? What are you looking forward to? What do you think we could be on the horizon when it comes to dealing with brain cancers and brain and spine metastasis? I think it has to be rooted in the fact that anyone listening needs to understand that there are people who live and breathe this and they are trying constantly to come up with new ideas and fighting that fight to push forward research push forward care make sure that patients are well taken care of you know i i literally sit down probably once a month and i go through the entire journey or what i perceive the journey of a patient is from you know their normal everyday life to their their you know final days in in a hospice setting or whatnot and I think about intervention points along that entire journey where we can do better. Um, and we, and then we try to address those points, right? So there are people, you know, like myself, like the Lennox team who are thinking about this constantly. Then I would say that take every one of those people and think about the advances in technology over the past 20 years, because it's exponential, right? So there is constant progress being made. Mm-hmm. You know, things move very, very quickly. Uh, even though they appear to move very, very slowly. And we are learning in vast amounts about an infinitely complex thing. Right. We just have to get the lead. You know, we have to catch on and that will happen. The other thing to know is your genes are unique to you. Your tumor's genes are unique to it. And so you have to have hope. You have to have hope that that we will figure this out, you know, gene by gene or tumor by tumor. And you have to believe in that. So there's a lot to be hopeful for. I wouldn't, I would never say that we're just not going to win this. I I think that's nonsense. I think we've come a long way. I mean, if you look at everything, everything we've talked about, I mean, even since, I mean, my husband was diagnosed in 2019, gamma tile therapy wasn't even on the board yet. Yeah. And 14 months later, he passed away. And now here we are two years after his passing. So it's only been three years in total, start to finish from the time he was diagnosed to where we are right this minute and look at where we are. Yeah. All of these different immunotherapies and vaccine treatments that are being offered and Yeah, look, the fluorescence guided resection, you know, mapping his networks to understand where to go and where not to go to maximize that quality of life benefit. Yes. Yeah, no, I agree. I think these things are all all constantly improving and you, you have to have hope. This is what I want listeners to know. I mean, this is something that is relentlessly being pursued by people so passionate such as you and and Dr. Bukvar and the rest of your team. And, and you guys are out there. And it's my job to bring you guys into the light and to let listeners know that these are the people you need to be seeking out. And this is what you need to be holding on to, to give you strength when these situations become really tough and here's the information you need and you don't have to dig for it because we're doing it for you. Yeah. Well, I can't thank you enough for doing this. Um, I think that it's immensely powerful. Um, you know, it was, it was election day and we all know the importance of community in terms of change, right? Yeah. And so you have, you have cultivated a community and you're, you're supporting your community. 
and that's how you know movements made so well thank you thank you so much for joining us today for being part of this i know you have a very busy schedule and a lot of the work that you do is tremendously uh, vital and important so uh, Dr. Uh, Diamico, thank you so much for, for joining us, for being here with us. And to all of our listeners, we will be right back. As you heard in our interview with Dr. Diamico, even for the doctors, the researchers, the scientists that are on the front lines of this with us, they get tired too. They get overwhelmed, they get exhausted, but they keep the fight going. Dr. Diamico made it very clear what pushes him. And when we hear these kind of stories and we hear the passion behind the doctor's voices, we hear what they're utilizing, the technology that's at the forefront, all to help in this fight against brain cancer, you can't help but feel uplifted. And as we draw this back around to what I was talking about at the beginning of the program about forgiveness, all of this ties together, especially this time of year, because it's so easy to sit here and be angry, to be upset, to be frustrated, to give up. As you heard with Dr. Diamico, he is not giving up. His team, the amazing staff that he works with at Lenox Hill, they're not giving up. They forgive themselves when they have a hard day, and we need to do the same. Forgiveness can be really tricky, and it can be very difficult to do. Whether it's forgiving somebody else or forgiving yourself. And I think the latter is the more important piece because we're affected by this. If you're a patient, you've got brain cancer. If you're a caregiver, you're the love of somebody with brain cancer or the parent of somebody with brain cancer or the child of somebody with brain cancer. And even if it's not brain cancer, even if it's another type of cancer, if it's something else, we have a tendency to want to turn inward, to want to fester inside of that anger or rage And that can really bring us down. Whether somebody has wronged us or we're frustrated and upset with the circumstances in our own life, we have to forgive. We have to open that up. And so how do you do that? You have to accept what's in front of you. We can't change what's been done, but there is so much to look forward to, regardless of the path that you're on. Repair. Repair your own mental thinking, your own emotional well-being. Repair your relationship with others. It is never, ever too late to lift somebody else up. And you'd be surprised at how often it lifts you up as well. Learn. Learn from everything that is going on. The path that we are given the steps that we have to take, the decisions we have to make, the treatment choices you have. Learn from the doctors and the scientists you hear on this show. Be open to learn. Learn from mistakes. Learn from things that have been said. And then forgive. Let go. Take a breath and take a step forward. As we head into our Thanksgiving holiday, There is so much for so many of us to be grateful and thankful for. And I don't know about all of you, but I am not only amazed, but truly grateful and thankful for the doctors and the researchers that are in this fight, the voices that we don't get to hear very often that get just as frustrated and just as scared sometimes as we do when we're walking down this path but they don't give up and we don't give up. And if you've learned anything from the patients and caregivers and other stories I've had on the show, you'll hear a theme. There's always something to be grateful for. 
there is always a way to enter the light. I hope all of you enjoy your holiday. Join us again next month. We have an amazing episode with a very inspirational woman who has done a lot of philanthropic work and she now does experience camps, grief camps for children who've lost a parent. It's a, it's a wonderful episode. It's very inspirational. There's a lot of love behind it. So join us next month. And until then, I hope everybody has a wonderful, safe and warm rest of your November. You've been listening to the Game on Glio podcast, the podcast that is designed to educate, advocate, and tell the real stories of those walking the journey of brain cancers such as glioblastoma and grief and loss. If you like our show, please share us with others. Follow us on Instagram at Game on Glio Podcast or on Facebook at Game on Glio. You can visit our website and our YouTube channel. You can find us anywhere podcasts are played.